Go with me to the book of Philippians. That's where we find our assignment or the word for today. Philippians chapter 2. And uh, as Pastor Frank uh, opened us up, which was perfect because it fits right in line uh, with what I was going to speak to you this morning. But uh, we're talking about the greatest. And so uh, if you have it, say, I got it. If you're ready to go, if you need some more time, say, hold up. All right, all right. We're waiting on you. We're waiting on you. Philippians chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. All right, come on, come on. Jesus. All right, holla. All right, all right, here we go, here we go. Uh, yeah, like just a youth ministry chant. Come on, somebody. Um, Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing, somebody say nothing. nothing. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. And here we have a clear example in verse 5. Let this mind, somebody say this mind. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God has, has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Come on. That's a good scripture. I want to speak to you for a few moments for the time that we have with each other today on the subject matter, the greatest servant, the greatest servant. Let us pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for this opportunity that we have to gather in your house. Father, I pray that you would bring understanding. I believe everyone that's here is here by divine appointment, that you have a word that you want to speak to them, minister to them individually and to us corporately. Use me as your servant. I cannot do this without you. Lead me, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for standing. You guys can be seated. As we celebrate this Christmas season, we oftentimes think of a baby that was born almost 2,000 years ago who would eventually change the world. But how many of us know in this room that Jesus coming to this earth changed everything? Everything. Come on, give it up for our Savior. If he, him coming to this earth changed everything. But for our time today, oftentimes we think about his life when it was here on this earth. But I want us to look at the thought process that Jesus went through before he decided to invade our earth with his presence. I want us to examine this. And we don't have to look very far because as we look at Philippians chapter 2, the apostle Paul receives a revelation on the mindset of Christ and what 
coming here meant for him, what steps he had to take to make himself come to this earth. We're going to examine this. But before we get into the crux of this message, give me some time to set up this text, to give you some context. First off, this was Paul writing to a church called Philippi, a church that he had established, a a church that was growing by leaps and bounds. And this church had brought Paul so much joy in the past. But he was concerned about this church because here recently he had received news that there was some strife, that there was some conflict that was going on. Anyone in here ever experienced some conflict? All right, we all have. But what makes it more concerning for Paul is as he was writing this letter, he was in a jail cell with an uncertain future. Theologians literally say that while he was in this jail cell, that the conditions were so deplorable that it's possible that he was writing this, writing from this jail cell with water coming up to his waist. You can understand the conditions that he was under and the concern that he had about this church because sometimes when you're going through something in your life, you need little rays of hope to help you get through. Am I talking to anybody? So for him, he was saying to himself, if only I could have just a little bit of joy in knowing that this church is okay. But nonetheless, he had received news that there was conflict. And we understand where this conflict comes from a little bit, as we look at Philippians 4, 2, it says that there were two ladies, Euodia and Syntyche, some awesome names, by the way, (laughs) Euodia and Syntyche, they were having some sort of conflict. We don't know what this conflict was, we don't know what all it entailed, but it was important enough to Paul, for Paul to feel the need to address it in his letter. Now, one thing that I want us to all understand in this room, we're going to have conflict, whether it be in a relationship, whether it be with our kids, whether it be in a job situation, whether it be in the church, conflict is always going to arise. But it's how we handle conflict that will define our Christianity for some people. And let me help you to understand this. Jesus said in Matthew 18, 15, that if somebody offends you or someone sins against you, to go and tell them their fault. May I submit to you that this is a scripture that I find myself sharing tens of thousands of times over this past year with so many different people because it's a struggle for all of us to deal with confrontation. How many of you in here love confrontation? Probably not many of you. But nonetheless, Jesus commands us, you are going to have times where you you feel sinned against. There's going to be times where you feel offended. And maybe the person that offended you didn't do it with malicious intent, but that's how you feel. But Jesus says, don't harbor those feelings. Don't operate in a level of bitterness, but go and tell the person their fault. Because they may not even know what they did to you. And he says, if they won't hear you, take with you two or three people so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. If they still won't hear you, then you take it to the church, submit it before a pastor, and if after all of that, the situation is still unresolved, he says to liken them unto a heathen, basically to let them go and to continually pray for them. That's the order of how we handle conflict. But it seems like this wasn't taking place in this church. But Paul uses the life of Jesus to help us understand how to overcome ambition, selfish ambition, and conceit. Let's look at this. First off, point number one, the cure for selfish ambition and conceit is true servanthood. Let me say that again. The cure for selfish ambition and conceit is true 
servanthood, self-ambition or conceit are the two greatest enemies to unity. You see this evident in a marriage, as I said earlier. You see where this is evident when you have an organization which is shooting towards a specific goal. When there is not unity because of selfish ambition and conceit, that entity is not going very far. Are you with me this morning? Selfish ambition is the desire to be number one. I'm number one. I deserve this. I should receive this. This is mine. Conceit speaks of pride or self-display. In other words, this is one of the hindrances that happens to many people and why they won't come to Christ is because of pride. But may I also submit to you, even in a marriage relationship, if there is no servanthood, there will continually be conflict in that relationship. Are you with me? And one thing that all of us have to work on, including myself, and this is something that the Lord has dealt with me time and time again. Brandon, you have to make sure that in your heart there is no ounce of self-entitlement. That there's no ounce of self-entitlement. But you have to realize everything that you have, everything that you've been given, I have given it to you and I have the power to take it away. So don't you ever get to the place where you think that you have anything figured out but always be in a perpetual state of learning. Did you know the Bible says in Proverbs that there is a way that seems right unto man, but the end is the way of death. I have always used that in marriage. I should never get to a point where I think I have this beautiful woman here on the front row figured out. I should always be in a state of learning. I should always be in a state of learning how to raise my kids. I should always be in a state of learning how to be a better pastor, a better coworker, a better friend. We should never get to the place where we think we have anything figured out because there's so much more that we can learn. But that's where selfish ambition and conceit come into play, where we think that we're number one. Are you with me? Unity and true servanthood was the driving force behind Paul's admonition in chapter 2. Possessing a lowliness of mind and esteeming others as better than yourself is the remedy for selfish ambition and conceit. To esteem others as better than yourself is foreign to us. And by the way, this is something that all of us have to rely on the Holy Spirit's help for us to do this because we don't naturally have these tendencies. Are you with me? This is why uh, uh, David said in the scriptures, Lord, search my heart. This is a prayer that I pray almost all the time. Lord, search my heart and see if there is any wicked way in me and purge me of anything that's not of you because I want to be close to you and I want to be pleasing in your sight. Now, he also asked us to be like-minded. And for some of us, lest we go into the deep end, this doesn't mean that there's never going to be a time in the body of Christ or in any type of relationship or in an organization where there's going to be a difference of opinion. How many of you say, thank God? (laughs) There are going to be a difference of opinion in some instances, but when it comes to the major matters, particularly the foundational truths of the Christian faith, these are things where we must be on one accord. We have to understand Jesus himself said in John chapter 14 that I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes into the Father except through me. Jesus is the way and the only way to God. How how do I know this? Answer this question for me. How do you get rid of your sin? Jesus was the only one that dealt with that question. And as Pastor Frank shared earlier, rather than trying to appease this holy God, 
which could never be done, he stooped down to where we are and saved us and offered us grace and forgiveness. Jesus is the only way. Are you with me? He's the only way. But sometimes when it comes to being like-minded, it takes work. And even though there may be differences, are there things that we can work on together? Can we major on what's major, but then on the minor stuff, can we let some of this stuff go? Can we compromise for the betterment of our relationship? Can we move forward from this? You know, one thing that um, is powerful, you know, the Bible says that marriage is honorable and the bed is undefiled. You know, uh, Proverbs says, he that finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. This is why we encourage people to get married because you're missing out on the favor of God when you shack up before marriage. You're missing out on God's best because he wants to bless you, particularly the man, because he's called you to be the hunter. It didn't say wives finding a man, but it says when a man finds a wife, he finds a good thing. How many of you know, ladies, you are supposed to be hunted? Are you with me in this place? Come on, come on, I'm preaching to somebody. But even within a marriage, some people may not understand the mystery between Christ and his relationship with the church. But they ought to be able to look at your marriage and not have a clue about the mystery between Christ and his relationship with the church, but begin to see traces of Christ in the man and traces of the church in the woman and get a picture of the relationship between Christ and his relationship with his bride. If both roles are played correctly, because watch this in Ephesians chapter five. Verses 21 through 31, he lays out that a man is called to love his wife like Christ loves the church. And where we talk about servanthood, this is so evident in the marriage relationship because I have an opportunity to serve my wife. Even though if I'm being honest with you, that's not always easy. Just like it wasn't easy for Christ to go to the cross. But Jesus commands me, I want you to be willing to go all the way to the cross and to die to your flesh whenever necessary. Because she deserves it. May I submit to you, if Adam would have nourished Eve and not allowed Eve to nourish him, the fall probably would have never happened. He let the ball drop. But it says in verse 21 that they're called to submit to one another. That he loves his wife like Christ loves the church. And she's called to submit to her husband as he submits to the Lord. And neither role is easy. Because if I as a man... And wanting my wife to submit to me. Woman, you need to submit because that's what the Bible says. Hold up, bro. The devil's a lie. <laughs> Do you think that we submit to Christ out of that kind of love or, or that kind of response, which isn't love? Why do we serve Christ? We serve Christ because we recognize that he was willing to spread himself wide for us. That he was willing to go the distance. That he was willing to die. And so our submission is a natural response to a love that's so great. And the same is true of a man and how we should treat his woman. It should never be a thing that I have to discuss. It should be my service and my love for you that propels us to be one. Are you with me? Servanthood is true. Becoming like-minded and behaving like a servant in the Christian faith is really about having a mind like Christ. But what was the mindset of Christ? And this is where I want to camp today and have you guys really hone in and what I want to share with you. Point number two, Jesus was and is the greatest servant. He was the greatest servant and he is the greatest servant. Let me prove it to you. As we look at these verses, first let's establish that servanthood begins in the heart. 
It's not an action, but it begins in the heart. Before Jesus ever vacated heaven and came to this earth, it was discovered in his heart that he had a trait of servanthood, that this is what was in his heart, and I want to show it to you. If we look at Philippians 2, 6 through 7, these verses, let's break this down. When it says that Jesus came in the form of God, what does this mean? First, let's, um, this does not mean that Jesus resembled God, but he was and is God. Are you with me? He is God. He existed from all eternity. The word form means the outward expression of the inward nature. Let me say that again if you're taking notes. The word form means the outward expression of the inward nature. Scriptural proof for this can be found in John chapter 1. He says, in the beginning was the word, speaking of Jesus, and the word was God, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. It also tells us in Colossians, Paul speaks about this to the church of Colossae. He says in uh, chapter 1, verse 15, that Jesus is the visible or the invisible image of God. He's the visible image of God. And that without him, nothing was made that was made. He created all things. It says in Hebrews 1 that he upholds everything by his power. Jesus is God. Are you with me? I don't have time to teach on this. Three distinct persons, but one God. How many of you remember when Jesus was getting baptized by John the Baptist? The Bible says that Jesus spoke and said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus was coming up out of the water. And if you remember, the dove came down in the form of a dove and came upon him. Three distinct persons, but one God. Try to wrap your mind around that. They're all one. Three distinct persons, but one. But we see traces of Jesus even in the Old Testament. If you've heard any of my teachings, one thing that I love to share is the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. But the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. So everything that we read in the Old Testament is a foreshadowing and a type of what was to come in the New Testament. Watch this. In the Old Testament, Pastor Frank shared this a couple of weeks ago when he was speaking about Daniel. Remember when Daniel and his two friends were thrown into the fiery furnace by Nebuchadnezzar? And remember, Nebuchadnezzar noticed a fourth person that was in the fire, in the furnace, that was not there previously. That was Jesus who was in that furnace. It was a visitation from him. Not only that, but in the uh, book of Genesis, chapter 14, as Abraham was returning from the slaughter, he met a man by the name of Melchizedek. Now, what's interesting is in the Old Testament, whenever somebody was introduced, there would be a lineage or a genealogy of how they came into being. But this Melchizedek showed up out of nowhere. And the Bible says that this Melchizedek was so powerful that Abraham paid a tithe unto this Melchizedek. But we understand in Hebrews chapter 7 that this Melchizedek was Jesus. And this is why, kind of a side note, some people would purport that tithing is part of the Old Testament law, that we no longer need to tithe. But the Bible tells us that Melchizedek has an everlasting priesthood. So even if Abraham was willing to pay tithes unto this Melchizedek and Levi not being born yet, still in his body, if he paid tithes unto Melchizedek, how much should we? Because our Melchizedek is Jesus and he lives forever. Think about that. He always was. He always has been. Jesus did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. What does this mean? 
It's important to understand, and watch this, personal and positional equality with God. Let me see, because there is a, 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 a true difference, and if you don't get this, you'll miss it. There is a difference between personal and positional equality with God. Are you with me? As to his person, Jesus always was, is, and will be equal with God. Let's establish that. It would be impossible for him to give that up. And we see this in the Gospels. Remember when Jesus was in the boat with his disciples and there was a huge storm that came and this dude was sleeping, taking it easy. And his disciples were all flustered. They were all scared. So he awoke out of his sleep and he said, peace be still. And the seas calmed his power. We also discovered that there was a man by the name of Nathaniel that was just chilling under a fig tree. And when Jesus met this man, he said that before I even met you, I saw you under a fig tree, all knowing. So we see the power of Jesus. He did not let go of any of this power when he came to this earth. Are you with me? But watch this. From all eternity, Christ was positionally equal with his father, enjoying the glories of heaven, But he did not consider this position as something he had to hold on to at all costs. I have this authority. I have this power. But how do I exercise it? I've been put in this position. But how am I viewed amongst my employees? Meekness and humility is power up under control. And that's what he possessed. He said, you know what? I have all of these rights and all of these privileges that are in heaven. And even though I could cling to this and I could hold on to this and keep it to myself for the joy that was set before me, I decided to let others in on these privileges that I possess. And the joy that was set before him was each one of you. He was thinking about you when he went to the cross. He was thinking about you when he was saying to himself how degradable it would be to put on human flesh. But because your soul is on the line, I'm willing to do it. I'm willing to let go of the privileges and the rights and the glories of heaven that I possess so that I might save you. Come on, that's some good news. He considered the joy set before him as greater. The joy of being you. He is willing to relinquish his positional equality with God. In other words, he was willing to give up the comforts and joy of heaven to rescue us. That's what he did for us. But made himself of no reputation. What does this mean? The literal translation says, but he emptied himself. That's what it means. He emptied himself. If we're not careful, we can like enter into heresy, thinking that God emptied himself of all of his authority and power. But let's understand, as we go back to our previous point, Christ emptied himself of his positional equality with God and to veil the glory of deity in the body of human flesh. Watch this. We see a glimpse of this as we look at the mountain of transfiguration in the Gospels. You guys remember Jesus? He took his three disciples, Peter, James, and John, on this high mountain. And the Bible says in a moment that he was transfigured before them. You know what happened? He took his coat off, so to speak. He said, I want to show you a glimpse of who I really am. I know that I've been contained, but there is a part of me that I want to reveal to you. How many of you have ever had those experiences with God? See, when you have those experiences with God, it's not a, it's not a matter of I know about God, but I know him. 
Because he's revealed himself in that hospital bed. He's, re- he's revealed himself to me in my marriage. He's, re- he's revealed himself to me when I was in my mess. I know him as God because he's done some things in my life. But he was transfigured. Come on, give the Lord a hand clap. But he was transfigured before them. And the Bible says that Peter, and man, you got to love Peter. Man, sometimes he gets so excited. But in his ignorance, all of a sudden, the Bible says that Elijah and Moses appeared. And Peter gets so excited. He's like, Lord, this is amazing, man. We got Jesus. We got Moses. We got Elijah. And by the way, how did he know that that was Moses and Elijah? May I submit to you that you will know who your loved ones are when you get to heaven, according to that scripture. But, how, but he knew. And he said, Lord, I got, an, I got a wonderful idea. Peter should have just kept his mouth shut. But he said, Lord, why don't we make a tabernacle, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah? As soon as he said that, God spoke. God had to speak. And the reason why God spoke is Peter, in his excitement, he was trying to put Jesus on the same level as Moses and Elijah. But what God was trying to submit to Peter, Moses represents the law, Elijah represents the prophets, and both of these pointed to Jesus. But he couldn't see that. He was ignorant. But it's Jesus who we worship and no one else. Taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men, as I come to a close, Nothing more clearly illustrates the incarnation and life of our Savior than John 13, 4. And this is what it says. Jesus rose from supper and laid aside his garments, took a towel, and girded himself. Why is this scripture so important? Because at first glance, it doesn't seem like it carries weight. But watch this. The towel or apron is the badge of service. It was used by slaves, faith church, slaves. So in this moment, when Jesus performed this act, he was assuming the position of a slave, and then he ended up washing his disciples' stanky feet. He assumed the position of a slave. And you tell me that you can't get over this disagreement. And you tell me, that you can't overcome what this person has done in your life, even though it was hurtful, even though it was painful. Greater love has no man than this, that he laid down his life for his friend. When you realize what Jesus has done for you, it propels you to forgive others. One of the clearest signs of spiritual maturity in someone's life is how quickly they forgive. If it's two years, three years, five years, six years, however long, Before you have forgiven this person, the question is, are you growing in your faith? Because when you discover, man, as we were singing that song earlier before we took communion, what kept echoing in my heart was this. He who is forgiven much, loves much. He who is forgiven much, loves much. When I understand the weight of everything that I myself was forgiven of, you don't have to force me to worship God. There isn't a song that you could play that could coerce me into worshiping God. Worship is in me because I know in whom I've trusted and I know what he saved me out of and continually saves me out of even to this day. Come on. Hallelujah. Come on. Come on. Not only that, but in Matthew 20, 28, it says, just as the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. 
It was a servant attitude. The last point that I want to make as we close, the way up is down. This is true in a marriage. This is true in our relationship. This is true in a business. The way up is down. There wasn't anything that Jesus was unwilling to do to become a servant so that you might be saved, so that he might set forth an example. You know, when I start to think about this, this ought to conjure up in our minds, why am I jealous of someone else's promotion? Oh, I'm, oh, oh hold, hold up now. Why am I jealous of somebody else's marriage? Why am I jealous of somebody else's success? You know, when I first stepped into ministry, one of the things that the Lord told me is he said, Brandon, and this is something that he placed within my heart. If I've called you to this and I've put my gifts on the inside of you, don't worry about how it's going to come to pass. But trust me. And can I be honest with you? There were seasons in my life where I felt overlooked. There were seasons in my life where I felt, Lord, is this actually going to come to pass? Are you going to fulfill your word? But the Lord kept reminding me, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. The gifts and promises of God are irrevocable. And so I had to learn something. One of the scriptures that really ministered to me and always has, Proverbs 21.1, it says, The king's heart is in the palm of the Lord's hands. And like the rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. Promotion is in the hands of God. Your job is just a channel. It's not your source. God is. So I had to stop. You know what? Sometimes we get in this place. I'm jealous. Or, or why is it that they get all these? Uh, stop worrying about those things. Be faithful to your creator and watch him exalt you in due time. Because what if the Lord is wanting to use you even while you were low to bring you high? Because whoever is exalted, God will humble you. But whoever humbles himself already will be exalted. And this is something that Jesus showed us. That's why God said at the end of this scripture that we just read that he's highly exalted. Because of his willingness to make sacrifices, because of his willingness to stoop to the lowest of lows, God exalted him. And I don't know about you. I'm not going to wait for the day to bow down to him. I will bow down to you right now, Jesus, because you are the Lord of Lords and you are the King of Kings. There was no depth to which he would not stoop to save our guilty souls. He chose to share the privileges and glories of heaven with humanity when he came to this earth. Though he was a spirit, he humbly put on human flesh and became a man. How degrading that was for him. He grew in stature and wisdom. He remained unknown for 30 years while sustaining everything by his power. The universe was still going on even though he was unknown to the earth. That's our God. He served. He loved. He healed. He set captives free. He allowed himself to be arrested. Yes, I said allowed himself because he could have called a legion of angels to come and rescue him at any moment. He was fed on by the very spit he created. He was slapped in the face by the very hand that he fashioned together. He was wounded. He was bruised. Flesh was ripped off of his back. He laid down his life. He rose. He lives to make intercession for us. By his saving grace, we are sealed. By his Holy Spirit, we are seated with him in heavenly places. What shall separate us from God's love? What need 
can we not meet? What stronghold cannot be torn down? What generational curse cannot be broken? Through him, we are more than conquerors. We are his bride. We are his body. He is coming back for us. He is the greatest servant. Now let us have the mind of Christ in every area of our life. Stand to your feet in this place. Worship you, God. We worship you.